This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. series of talks, Strange Fascinations, is programmed to complement a visit to the David Bowie Ease Exhibition, which is of course downstairs and runs through to November. Uh, Strange Fascinations is an ongoing series of free talks that we'll have up here in the studio that offers a broad and sometimes strange insight into Bowie and his influence on everything from music to film to fashion. Uh, the series will see uh, Bowie mega fans, critics, writers, musicians, and pop culture aficionados. Uh, offering up an intimate and detailed look at Bowie's uh, iconic work and life, uh, with events running on numerous dates from now through the end of the run of the exhibition. Uh, up tonight, though, we're of course joined by the wonderful Geraldine Quinn, uh, who'll be exploring how Bowie's career has intertwined with the world of cabaret, and we'll be looking at the iconic musician's influence on practitioners of the genre from the 1970s through to today. Uh, Geraldine is a self-taught uh, songwriter, comedian, guitarist, and singer who's performed to local and international sellout audiences everywhere from the Melbourne International Comedy Festival to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, to name a few. Uh, she's won multiple awards for her work, including a Short and Sweet Cabaret Award and the Brian McCarthy Memorial Moosehead Award. Uh, and in April of this year, uh, after four career nominations in the category, she actually took home the Green Room Award for Best Cabaret Artist. Uh, she's appeared on ABC TV Sticks and Specs uh, and Adam Hills Tonight's, SBS's Rockwiz and the Comedy Channel. And a few short weeks ago, uh, she rocked the roof off Acme as part of our Bowie Up Late program of late night gigs. Her and her band downstairs absolutely slammed it. It was amazing. Uh, but as I mentioned, she's here to talk to you about Bowie and Cabaret tonight. Uh, so please make her feel welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, there's no no pressure at all. Sean told me. I suspected this was going to be true, but he told me just before I came up that, hey, we're going to be recording this for a podcast. So now I have to try to be articulate. Um, the fact that I'm standing behind a lectern is really weird for me. Uh, there's a gentleman who I can see who's completely spotlit, who's right in my eyeline with his hands in his hand already, and I haven't even begun. So what I'm trying to say is that um, it was a good idea that uh, Sean and, and the technician actually equipped me with a lapel mic as well. So if there's at any point that I feel like this is getting a bit too academic, I can just come out here and talk at you and approach you and make you feel really unsafe because that's kind of the point, I think, of what cabaret actually is. Um, Sean did a wonderful introduction. I was going to say to you what I do and where I come from. I, I basically wanted to be David Bowie when I was growing up. I wanted to be a, a musician playing stadiums eventually, but with that sort of level of theatre, um, it was kind of difficult for the 1990s, early, uh, well, late 80s and 90s. I was a teenager. And um, things changed a lot. Grunge came in, or it was chamber pop and indie music, and I didn't have the money for that. 
size band. Uh, so I kind of fell into academia and um, studied literature and English for a while and got into a theatre group and then I went and trained as an actor and <laughs> got no work and so became a cabaret artist. Because cabaret is one of those forms where you can make your own work very easily. And, and that's sort of where I've ended up today, 10 years later, with a, a bunch of nominations and a hopefully a good reputation, which I'm pretty much praying I'm not going to ruin tonight. Um, so when Acme kind of asked me, oh, what do you want to talk about with Bowie? Because we know you're a big Bowie fan. I thought, oh, well, let's, let's do this. And I was like, no, somebody's doing that. Okay, well, let's do this. And you know, somebody else is doing that better. I thought, ah, oh, okay, um, why don't you do this? Oh, no, actually, I don't think I can do an hour on that. And then I thought, well, why not look at Cabaret? Why not look at what that genre kind of means? How people can interpret him? Just a couple of singers that I think did him really, really well. And how they... Bowie and Cabaret as a genre sort of fold in on each other and inform each other and that's what I'm hoping I can give you a little bit of information about uh, tonight and you're all kind of looking at me like I know what I'm talking about, which is great. I have to, part of what I do in a comedic context is to downplay any knowledge that I have so that you don't hate me. Is that clear? Um, so I guess probably one of the first things that we should think about is what Cabaret actually is. Good question. Really good question. Um, do we have access to microphones? We have. Could I ask, does anybody want to posit a guess as to what they think, how they could define that as a, as a genre or an art form? See, here I get out from behind the lectern. Anybody? Don't be scared. It's okay. Everything's fine. I can touch him because he knows me, but that doesn't stop me from touching people that I don't know. Um, anybody? Nobody? Feel confident. This is a conversation. It works better for me than it's a conversation. Nobody's afraid. Okay, that's fine. That's okay. It's really hard to define. There's a couple of things in the modern context that I think I would like to define it as. And I need to add to this, this is going to be about what I think cabaret is and the way that I think it works. There's going to be people that disagree with some of the elements that I say because it is such a difficult genre to, to get your handle on. One thing I personally think has got a lot to do with singing and interpretation of song. If not writing, you're interpreting your own song. Um, one very important thing is no fourth wall. I think I've demonstrated that pretty clearly already and yet I am capable of getting up the stairs, um, although slowly. So, so it's one of those kind of art forms where it's quite episodic, it's quite immediate, it's, um, and it's often very much about, I think, modern terms anyway, that interpretation of song. And as I said, there'll be people that disagree with me on that point. There's a great quote that I found um, that Bowie said in an interview with Gordon Coxer where he went, a lot is said and written about the musical snobbery with the fans, but I think the groups are just as bad. For some reason, even the words entertainer and cabaret make them shudder. And weirdly, I think that's still true. I still think that sometimes cabaret can feel like a bit of a dirty word. Like in some way, it is a genre by the very definition cheapens music. I would posit that that is not true from performances such as from Sally Brown anyway. So... It is difficult to define because of its kind of fragmented nature. Um, the songwriter Friedrich Hollander said it was a juxtaposition of a variety show, a theatre, and political tribunal. But modern cabaret, I don't know, what, it, what has it become now? Does it still represent Bowie-like ideals, or is it morphing into a higher art form? What his influence from cabaret, I think, comes from, who's seen the exhibition show of hands? So about half of you have already seen the exhibition. You would have seen in that that he had an interest in the Fosse film cabaret, which of course was representing that 1940s Weimar era 
idea of cabaret. Europe post-World War One was very fractured um, and a lot of change was happening in the way that art was perceived. So modernism was on the rise. People were kind of railing against the traditional and against classicism. And that was certainly true in um, what became cabaret. As I was researching this, there was a wonderful thesis I found by a New Zealand professor now. Uh, he's a professor, Ian Chapman. He's at um, the University of Otago in Dunedin. And he wrote a great thesis called David Bowie, Life as a Cabaret, where he was actually looking at how much influence Bowie had from the Weimar era of cabaret. And um, he was a really great touchstone to have a look at how those elements worked with the way that Bowie actually worked. This is the boring bit. It's going to get more interesting later on. So in Chapman's thesis, though, he said, more so than any other theatrical form, cabaret was invested with contemporaneity. And he quoted uh, Jelovich, who wrote a great book about Berlin Cabaret, who outlined that cabaret was fusing everyday life with artistic excellence. So it's this perfect mix of high art and low art. And Weimar Cabaret, that idea that now we think of, it's been translated into that sort of white-faced, corseted, you know, Joel Grey as the MC in the film Cabaret, that kind of aesthetic. That rose in an era of decadence post-World War I. It railed against tradition. The irony, I think, is that that's kind of become something of a tradition in itself within modern cabaret. Um, it's almost as if the chaos that attracted people like Bowie has now become the globalization of it, the trend of it, and that seems safe to me now. So you still have to get into the pit to get dirty with cabaret, in my point of view. I think it's caused a bit of a schism in the way that the, the genre works. And maybe Bowie has got more to offer cabaret than just covering his films. Uh, Jelovich, in his book, actually identified four main themes that he thought defined cabaret. One was um, politics, which Bowie isn't very political unless we count Loving the Alien at a very broad reading. Fashion, and there are other experts who will be talking about that in these various talks. Um, gender, sex, gender presentations, and what he referred to as racism. Chapman, however, preferred to use this fourth element and treat it more like otherness, fear of otherness and fear of being alien. That, I think, certainly makes a lot of sense with Bowie and with Cabaret as well. So I'd like to touch more on the kind of sex and gender issue, the high and low art issue and that otherness sort of issue and how that plays out in Cabaret, but I really want to do it through example. I just want to give you a bit of an interest in an introduction to people that I think are really interesting and that I think have a lot to teach us now. And God, I feel like my mother right now. She's a primary school teacher. So uh, if I start adding up things like my groceries in my head, then you can just imagine I'm channeling Jeanette. David Bowie described himself as a cross between Nijinsky and Woolworths. <laughs> and he said, I tend to steal high art and demean it to street level. Now, I want to show you next another clip in a second, which is um, an interview with somebody who really beautifully embodies that high and low art element. And those of you who've seen the exhibition have got any passing knowledge of Bowie will recognize this artist. Klaus Momi, of course. Klaus Momi was, um, I probably wouldn't describe himself as cabaret. I think he probably would describe himself more as performance art. But I love the way there was no hesitation when she said, where do you see yourself in a year from now? Oh, performing at the Metropolitan Opera. 
Like, he was a brilliant, brilliant singer. He was a wonderful person. Like, he, he came from, he was born in Bavaria, and he came to New York, um, I think, in the 1970s. In the 1970s New York, you remember, you're talking about a town that was basically, it was a city that was on the brink of bankruptcy during the 70s. So it became this, this mecca for people who felt like they didn't fit in anywhere else. And they would come to New York. It still is to a degree. And there was this beautiful family of kind of artists and, and people creating work and creating variety work and putting it together that developed around this time. I can't recommend highly enough the documentary about Class Nomi called The Nomi Song. It's quite hard to get in Australia. It wasn't distributed here as far as I know. I know one video store that has it. Uh, so talk to me after the show and I'll give you a hot check. Um, but it's, it's, this, it's a really wonderful documentary because it sort of talks to an awful lot of his, his friends and people who were working there at the time. If you recognize him in a Bowie context, it will be from that Saturday Night Live appearance that he made with Joey Arias, um, with them doing three different songs. And there's a great piece in the documentary where one of his singing teachers is talking to, is talking to the camera and he's saying, look, he came to me and we're talking about training his voice and, and he insisted on training his upper register. And I was like, well, what's the point? There was no counter tenor industry then. There is now, but there wasn't any way that you could use that upper register, that male upper register then. But he insisted on kind of working on that part and that's the part of what he did that made him really unique. And he fell in love with opera and rock at the same time and disco. And so he started working with exactly that high and low art form and bringing them together in a really wonderful way. I personally love the fact that he chose the song Falling in Love Again, made famous by Marlene Dietrich, who was in a film with David Bowie. Oh my God, it's all folding in on itself. You know, that sort of thing's wonderful. That's the heart of what I think Cabaret is, is finding these, this beautiful voice. And he had a beautiful voice. And it was well, well trained. It was excellent. It's exactly what we were talking about before, that excellence of art. And that not... Bowie said demean to the street level. I think demean's a harsh word, but that, that it brings it to people on the street by using it through pop and through rock and through disco. That's why I think he's really important as a figure. He also had this great sense of his presentation to the world. So he saw Bowie's Dada-influenced Weimar tuxedo, and he went back to the guy who made it for Bowie and said, I want to get this made. How much can you afford? I want to make a version of this. And he sort of made it into his own kind of, um, into his own look. And he had that wonderful moment that anyone who wants to brand themselves has, which is you can recognize him by his silhouette. Perfect. But I think he's a really good touchstone for what we're talking about because he had the same, like Bowie, that same level of performance, the commitment to the theater of it, that mix of that high and low. And he also had a strange sort of asexuality otherness about him. And I think a lot of what he, did, he had done has really contributed to the way that we see Cabaret today. Um, so I want to show you another clip about Class Nomi. There was this, the madness and the vaudeville kind of scene in underground New York at the time meant that these huge shows were being put together and there were these call-outs for talent. And I was like, they want drag queens and they want singers and they want robots and they want this, that and the other. And they put them all together into this mad show and it was Klaus's first experience to just express himself as not Klaus Berber, the pastry chef from Germany who trains as a singer, but as Klaus Nomi, the, the creature, the being, the, the artist. So that's the next one I, 
I'd like to give you a bit of a look at. It starts off with um, a snippet from one of his contemporaries at the time he was involved in this particular show, and it was one show that really exploded his, um, his fame. Oh, he was absolutely fabulous. He was such a wonderful performer. Like, he was, he was completely unique in what he did, and I think what he did is such a great informer of cabaret because it's completely messing with everybody's heads. And like the way that his colleague there was describing how you had all these cynical rock guys going, ah, I, don't, I don't know what this is, but it's amazing. That's what the power of cabaret can be. So I don't find it in, surprising at all that Bowie was so intrigued by this character that everybody was talking about in New York and that he got to the level of, of success that he did. Um, it's just a shame that he wasn't around that long to share what he had to offer with the rest of the world because he died very, very young. But what a beautiful voice. And I'm always attracted to the voice because, you know, being a singer, I, of course, find that level of drama interesting. And I think Bowie's always sung with that level of drama, and I think that's part of the reason that's become a very attractive thing to me. But he had the same sense of theatricality and grandness that Nomi has. And I recommend that you look up more of his stuff if you haven't actually heard of Klaus Nomi before. He's pretty interesting, and he did cram a lot into the short time that he had on this planet. He had that kind of asexuality, alien sort of quality to him. Bowie's kind of interesting um, when he started working more with growing his hair along and having his man dresses and makeup and whatever else. There were other guys that were wearing makeup in that glam rock era. But the thing about Bowie was that he, he kind of really twisted the idea of a male rock star in a different way because he became, some people say asexual. I kind of think it's kind of ambisexual. I think it's a bit like... The way that he wrote his songs and that he told his stories, he wrote them in such an episodic, again, there's that word, very cabaret, way that people could project onto them what they wanted to interpret. I think that's true also of the way that he presented himself in terms of gender, of desirability and desire, of, of whether he was male or female or whether you were attracted to him as male or female. And that really kind of twisted that whole, you know, cock rock kind of a vibe that, yeah, Mark Bowen could have a little bit of glitter on his face, Twisted Sister could run around with makeup all over the place, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the sort of blank canvas. And it really pushed that idea of gender presentation in a way that I think cabaret still does. And when I say cabaret, I should add, I think that extends to things like drag. And I think drag is a theatre expression, and that's really important in, in this kind of a genre. Um, and burlesque, and all these other ways of expressing oneself in terms of one's gender. Okay, I'm going to tell you a personal story because I've got to keep you engaged. So, the thing is, I grew up loving Bowie. That's pretty patently obvious. And one thing I loved about him was when I hit puberty and suddenly things happened, I wanted to get away from being seen as female because suddenly I was, oh my God, everyone else is looking at me like woman. And they're thinking of me as woman, not as Geraldine anymore. And that was a problem because it's like, but I'm getting a certain amount of prejudice. It does happen. Don't tell me that it doesn't. Like, eyes up here. You know, come on. And so Bowie was really attractive because he was androgyny for me, but suddenly my physicality was going, yeah, you're not really going to pass for anything but a woman. So as I started to perform in cabaret, I, I, um, I got about five years into my career and a friend of mine who was a drag queen said, you need to go crazy with your costume. You've got to go nuts with your costume. Because you've got, you've got to make everything bigger than you're doing now. You're sort of falling through the cracks. So I started off wearing jeans, jackets, 
scarves, trying to be kind of generic rock, occasionally getting mistaken for Noel Fielding at the top bar at the Gilded Balloon, but when they were really drunk and it was really dark. Okay, it did happen. Don't laugh, it's true. But I sort of kept coming to these costume designers, all of whom had a background of drag performance, as well as couture, as well as theatre, you know, costume design, as drag performance, and saying, I want this clean line and this tailored this and this tailored that, three bags full, tailored, straight lines, straight lines, and they're going, we can't do that because these are here, she says in podcast referring to her breasts. There we go, for the listeners at home. So we ended up having to kind of compromise between what I wanted to present myself as within cabaret and what my body would allow in terms of the laws of physics. So we kind of hit upon the kind of costumes that I've got now, which are actually really super female. They're really increased. So it's cinching in my waist, the tits come up, the legs come out, it's glittery as anything. I look like a fairy's just vomited all over me. It's fantastic, right? And that's what I'm going for. And what I found was interesting is even though all my life I just wanted to be androgynous and I wanted to be like David Bowie and pass for both genders, I suddenly was going, well, I can't, so I'll kind of be accentuating what I am. And then audiences genuinely mistook me for a man in drag. (laughs) But that's kind of interesting in a different way because it makes me sort of think, I can push a gender perception, like a gender presentation, in a different way. I'm never going to get away with looking like a man. Sure, I've got the whiskers for it. I'm 40. Hey, it's hormones. But I'm never going to get away with looking like a man. But, but if I push my femininity out and get that response from some audiences, yeah, they're kind of small-minded. That doesn't mean they didn't like the show. Like, don't get me wrong. But... If that's the response that people get, then maybe what we can do in cabaret particularly is really push people's expectation of what a gender is supposed to look like, of what a woman is supposed to look like in my case, you know. Because it's a very powerful thing if you can get away with either gender because you can mess with people's minds and make them rethink things. So what happens when you've got a physicality that can't do that? Well, can we mess with it in different ways? Well, clearly we can like, that genuinely happened. I walked on stage. I'll tell you the story. I walked on stage and a woman went, before I'd said a word, I was emptying this burlesque gig, before I said a word, this woman went, oh, my God, is that a man? And I kind of gave her a bit of stick for the rest of the show. And her husband came up to me in the middle of the, um, the, middle of the show, the intermission, and he said, oh, I'm really sorry about her. I'm her husband. Um, yeah, look, she's a bit like you. She's a bit older. She's had a couple of kids. And I went, yeah, I'm going to stop you now. Don't have children. I'm going to go upstairs to get changed. Got to the second half of the show, and afterwards, one of her mates was going, Oh, it was really great. It's like, oh, thanks so much. It's all in the guys who are in the show. It's all about the show. These people are really talented. They're really funny. They're really wonderful. And um, she said, Look, I'm, I'm um, such and such a friend. Um, she's really embarrassed. And she came over and talked to me. Yeah, it's fine. I'm not offended. It's completely fine. And she came up to me. She was so embarrassed. She was so shamefaced. And she said, and I quote, I'm really sorry. I wasn't calling you a man. I was asking if you were a she-male. Which made it so much better. She then explained she'd just come back from Thailand. 
Now, I then went and told that story at the same venue on stage a little bit later going, isn't it amazing? This chick, again, she's lovely and she liked the show and that's the main thing. But like, wow, wow, put your, put your foot in your mouth, wow. I told that story on stage and a guy came up to me after and said, I'll be honest with you, I, I did think you were a man at first. Um, and then I thought you were miming. So, yeah, I've really taken drag queen to a whole other level <laughs> in that respect. But I do think it's a really interesting thing. Bowie kind of pushed the idea of what a male rock star was supposed to be. He's a leader of band, you know. It's him. He's the, he's the show. There was so much about those early shows in the 70s where, which were absolutely cabaret, where he'd have people coming on doing bits and pieces of performance art and, and various kind of stagings of songs in particular ways. So there was so much of that influence there. But he got away with murder, whereas somebody like me has got to be a bit more creative about pushing the way that people think about things like gender and the way that we present ourselves. Um, which brings me on to, well, I want to kind of look at, I want to look at Tally Brown in a little bit more detail. Tally Brown's kind of extraordinary. She's, um, she was one of Warhol's circuit. Uh, she started off as a, as an opera singer, she's the woman that we saw at the top of the at the top of the podcast slash talk. She started as an opera singer um, in the forties, and she was working with the I think it was the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And when she was a teenager, she was at a venue called Tanglewood, which was the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And she was training, as I said, opera singer again, high art, high art, low art. I said that with um, inverted commas, listeners. And she met Leonard Bernstein. And Leonard Bernstein, she sang something in front of him and he sort of went, you know what you are? You're a white Billy Holiday, which is what she said she always wanted to hear that. That's what she really wanted to be. So she's one of those singers that, like a lot of cabaret performers, is kind of trying to find out where they fit. Because they kind of don't fit in anywhere else. And so what he did was he gave her a Bessie Smith song and a couple of other songs um, to sort of play with, and they sang it at a bar, and she just went, oh, this is the voice that I'm trying to train for. She got her start singing uh, cabaret in strip clubs, uh, I think still in Boston, and, and she said that the best audience she ever got was at a strip club on Thanksgiving. So all the normal punches were hung at their friends. And what she had in her audience was what she described in a fabulous documentary from which these clips have been taken. What she had as her audience were older strippers, so people whose business were at Haunt, where they used to work, and young sailors. And she said that was the best audience she'd ever had. And if you think about it, one thing that's really wonderful about, one thing that's really wonderful about cabaret is I think it's a haven for the outsider for the people that don't fit in anywhere else. And in a sense, that audience didn't fit in anywhere else. Those sailors were probably just there for a night or two nights. And, you know, the regulars, that's their haunt because where else do they go? And she just felt that connection with people straight away. Um, and she had this, she had a cane. She, she, she actually worked in musicals for a while. She had a bad accident one, when she was performing in one musical and she smashed her knee. So for the rest of her life, she had this cane. And she walked around quite slowly at this, this kind of pace, maxing it out. Sort of, and 
and she was pasty, pasty white, as you saw, with like eye makeup, black as black can be, like two crows have just crash landed into the cliffs of Dover. Massive black hair, and she was this. She was in a, she, she was a big woman, and a really sexy woman with a slash of red lipstick, and everything about her was regal. She just had such a bearing. Everybody met her kind of went. She just had such this this extraordinary, glorious bearing to her. And she would do blues numbers, and she would do Rolling Stones numbers, and she did a lot of Bowie numbers. She definitely had crossed paths with Bowie with photographs of her hanging around with Mick Ronson and everything else. But And, of course, she's from the Warhol circuit, so, you know, it's the same kind of scene. But I wanted to show you a song that she did, a Bowie song of hers, because I just think she's such a great meld of old cabaret and new cabaret. Like, she's got such focus. And this is just a piano. This is her and a piano from this documentary. And I have to hasten to add that the quality of the video, I purchased this DVD from the director, and that's, the, that's actually the quality, but it sounds quite good. So you just watch her incredible focus in singing this song. And I know there's a German audience member here tonight. This is the song where she switches from English to German. So be kind. She's, she's been dead for 30 years. I love her. I just think she's wonderful. I don't know. I, I just think she's just one of those people that it looks old-fashioned in, in a way, because the way that. But if you listen to the production of that song, it's bloody hard to do with a band. And she's just the focus is extraordinary. I think she's wonderful. I'm getting a feeling I need to wrap up soon, um, though I think we started a little bit late. The thing about cabaret that I think is really exciting is it feels to me like it's a haven for people who not only don't conform but can't conform. So when you look at artists like Nomi, you look at artists like Charlie Brown, and you look at, I think, they're really interesting cabaret artists. They're people that, that not just sort of smashing tradition in the way that is possible, but in a way that they feel that they have to because they don't fit in somewhere else. Um, and what's a beautiful thing about the cabaret scene is that there's no fourth wall with you. And so we make you freaks alongside us. And that's, that's a really exciting piece of theatre to be involved with. If you think about that whole idea of, um, of the authentic or the inauthentic self or the presentation of yourself, and, you know, Bowie played so much with those alternate egos and everything. Um, if you think of a rock star, they've kind of got this pressure to, to behave in this certain way throughout their whole life and have that as a lifestyle. The thing about cabaret that's interesting is that unless you're playing a character like someone like Meow Meow, is that I get to be Geraldine Quinn as Geraldine Quinn on stages. I get to be the heightened vision of myself that I present to you as well as be the Geraldine Quinn that's off stage. And there's that wonderful kind of play of, I'm me, but I'm kind of showing you exaggerated bits of me, but I'm being really direct with you and really direct with how we interact with each other. Now, I think Bowie took all that from Cabaret and put it into the way that he performed. What I think in modern Cabaret is becoming problematic, for me personally, is that we maybe are forgetting that element. We're forgetting to take that back from what Bowie brought and bring it back out to the way that we perform to people in terms of pushing expectation, pushing tradition. And that doesn't just mean choosing unusual songs. I mean, if you're an original songwriter, it's a different thing again. But I feel like the most exciting performers um, are bringing that sense of, I want to break something. You know, I want to break a genre. I want to look outside my genre and bring other things in. So we have a lot of cabaret artists who do cover Bowie, and I've covered Bowie myself. 
I need to add, he's really hard to cover in a cabaret context because the guy doesn't write stories. So whatever modern cabaret is, we do tend to have a bit of a focus on telling a story and the nature of the way that Bowie always wrote and intended to write was that the cut-up method, it was episodic, it was giving you a vague sort of landscape that was a little bit in the fog so that you could decide what it meant. And he meant to do that. That's not very conducive to cabaret, that's the thing. So the choices of songs that people do use tend to kind of be the same examples again and again, but we have to be careful that we don't choose to cover a song just because it's a Bowie song. I want to I finish up with a great singer, a great modern singer. Um, I think Bowie can teach us more than choosing to cover his songs. I, I think from the level of theatre to the costuming, the makeup, they're all tangible influences. I worry about losing his, his method. So I think that Bowie imbued cabaret in his sense of rock, like he infused rock with that cabaret sensibility and in turn cabaret can be infused with that spirit of rock through him. And by that I mean the heroism of it, the grandness of it, you know, the connection with people that's immediate. So looking beyond the genre to keep being interested and interesting in what you're actually doing and how you're working with the audience. I don't want cabaret as a genre to fall into like a comfortable zone, into being a, a high art with no low art. I want it to still have that, that mix of the two. And there are people that do that today. Meow Meow does it brilliantly. And Tommy Bradson, who you probably haven't heard of, but is a really incredible Australian performer who's always pushed the envelope and done fantastic stuff. So I'm going to finish with a singer who... Um, She's done a lot of David Bowie. She's actually chosen a lot of the songs that Tally Brown used to do as well um, and beyond. She's got a completely insane growl of her voice and she just throws herself into it totally and utterly. She's such a great cabaret performer. But before I play her, I just wanted to give you a quote where Tally Brown was talking to Lenny Bernstein. He asked her to do something physical. I can't remember what it was. And she said, but Lenny, I'm, I'm injured. And he replied, we all are. I think that's where cabaret can be a really powerful thing because it tends to attract people who don't fit in anywhere else and we want to play the people that don't fit in anywhere else. And that's where I think what Bowie tried to bring to rock music, we can go back to those building blocks, to those bricks. That's what's going to keep this genre exciting and interesting and keep us interested in each other. Sounds like a really good place to press play. Wonderful Camille O'Sullivan there. Thank you so much for coming along. Um, I really appreciate it. I hope, I hope you found something of interest in what I had to say. This is the bit you cut out at the end of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, Sean's not here. So yeah, my name's Geraldine Queen. It's been a really pleasure to have you here. And um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> you have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.